If the essence of Jutum is about that which is inner and real value, real authenticity, real care, real compassion, um, real uh, spiritual development and desire to be the best person we can, and if the only way we can sell that is through charismatic education, through that which looks good and is superficially attractive, we, we can contradict the message itself. Welcome to a new series of Jewish Wisdom on JTV in our new studio. We're joined again with Rabbi Zobin. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Um, let's just jump straight into some hot topics. So uh, egalitarianism is something that has been on the rise uh, for the last century, really, starting with, you know, uh, equality when it comes to the vote. Now we're starting to see more of it when it comes to issues of... Um, I'm speaking specifically with regard to gender roles. Um, we're seeing more equality in the workplace. Um, some people have felt that there's been a bit of a gap between uh, this progress towards greater egalitarianism and moves in the orthodox Jewish world. Um, I suppose the first question to ask is, is, is would you say that Judaism is, does have an egalitarian outlook? And do you think there is a gap between sort of the egalitarianism within the modern world today and the way we see gender roles in Judaism. What do you think about that? I think um, egalitarianism or equality is one of these phrases that needs a little bit of defining. Sure. And uh, depending how one uses it, uh, the, the response would vary. What exactly do we mean when we talk about equality? If we mean by that um, that everyone is equal in the sense that everyone is identical, possesses the same uh, charisma, the same intelligence, the same health, um, the same appearance, the same wealth and resources, then clearly we don't live in an equal world. And it's hard uh, to conceive of how such an equal world could ever be and uh, whether that would be a good thing. Mm. To create equality in which um, all children are born into exactly the same environment, exactly the same family backgrounds with exactly the same uh, health and uh, personalities and qualities uh, would be perhaps a, a boring world to live in and certainly not one that would be feasible to create. So, so if that's what's meant by equality, then uh, certainly Judaism, and I would argue life, doesn't subscribe to uh, such equality. If, on the other hand, we mean equality in terms of the values that matter to Judaism, um, spiritual, moral, ethical development, and ultimately the ability to relate to oneself, to other people, and to God, then I would say Judaism is absolutely egalitarian. Um, it believes that men and women are all able to, are both able to become perfect human beings, developed human beings, moral and spiritual human beings, uh, who have a close and personal connection with God. Indeed, our, our great Jewish leaders were both prophets and prophetesses, surely the peak of what a human can ascribe, can, can aim for, aim to I'm achieve. I'm still working on that. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, in, in that sense, it is egalitarian. Um, the halachic system, the pathway outlined in the Torah to allow people to maximize their spiritual potential is different between the genders. And uh, these differences reflect not a lack of equality, but simply a, a different path to reaching that same ultimate goal, which is certainly equal between both men and women. Um, I would suggest that that difference, in fact, is true to life. 
Um, the biological functioning of a man or woman are different. This has a, a clear effect on, uh, on personality and on uh, relationships, on emotions, and on, therefore, the spiritual pathway they have. After all, the ability to bear a child and carry a child and bring a child into the world is a significant achievement, one that certainly in Judaism is at the peak of what human beings can achieve and what they can uh, aim towards. And with such a significant spiritual dimension difference in their being, it would be surprising, on the contrary, if the spiritual pathway and the halachic system, therefore, is identical between the two. So if by egalitarianism you mean uh, equality, in, in the law, in halacha, equality in value as a human being, absolutely. If you mean the pathway, halacha after, after all means a path along which we can walk, then no, the two aren't identical. Right. So I think there's a, there's a lot to unpack in that. Um, the first part is I'd say, to, well, where do we see within maybe the, the Jewish texts that there is a clear understanding of there is a difference in roles. Are you saying this is just intuitive based on the bi that we have different bi biology? Or is there something that's actually within the text itself? That would be my first question. There is no one particular source for this. There are several sources within the halachic system. And just uh, going through a couple of them to uh, give examples of these, perhaps the best well-known one is that positive time-bound commandments are not obligatory on women. Now this often goes unnoticed because it's certainly something that they can do, and if they do do, uh, is a positive achievement. But nonetheless, it's not an absolute obligation, commandment of chiyuv. So, for example, listen to the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, a time-bound positive commandment, and therefore not an absolute obligation on women. And the reason for this is not to deprive women of an opportunity. They surely can do the mitzvah, as indeed we know they do. But is rather to allow them space so that they aren't restricted by this time-bound mitzvahs, by this time-bound commandment, and are therefore able to also focus on family and home, if that is indeed what, what is necessary. Now, in our thinking, family and home is not a minor spiritual achievement. On the contrary, it's at the very peak and pinnacle of what a human being can do. What could be more wonderful than bringing another life into the world and producing a well-rounded, healthy, happy young child? If we look at the life of our great... Where's, where's the evidence for that, the, the, the not, not decreeing that time-bound laws are, uh, should be applied to women? Where's the evidence that that is because of the fact that it's giving them more time to focus on family life? So, for example, some, some people argue that uh, the reason why they were given this was because they were, let's say, not considered like first-class citizens. Um, and often women were grouped together with children and uh, servants um, in the Jewish texts. Mm -hmm. And so this is more sociological category. And now that we live in a time where women are more equal or are equal, um, we don't need to have these uh, differences. What mm -hmm. would you say to that? One would have to look at the source of these distinctions, how these distinctions work, and a pattern of general uh, halachic uh, relationship to the different genders in order to answer that question. So first of all, certainly when it comes to these set of commandments, this is depriving no one of, is not depriving them of anything. Um, they are entitled to do the mitzvah, able to fulfill the commandment, simply not obligated mm. to do so. And in a world in which we view obligations as perhaps less than always positive, surely having full access to a particular 
spiritual opportunity without the obligation to do so can't be viewed as a disadvantage. Does it potentially make it a bit less meaningful experience for them though in a sense like or is it a bit some would say condescending that they you know we you know we don't need you to do this we as a Jewish people don't need you to do this you know what I mean? I, I don't think so I, I'm not sure that um, if one looked at the experience on Rosh Hashanah of listening to the shofar there would be a difference between how the genders relate to that I don't know and um I don't think it uh, it has to be viewed in that way at all. Um, again, choosing to engage with spirituality in, in a manner in which it's an expression of self-choice, certainly in the current Western way of thought, is, is an advantage, not a disadvantage. The perhaps in Judaism, which is so commandment-based, uh, you could argue it's otherwise. The, uh, if we look at the values of the Torah, we look at the lives described of our great figures, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, if we look at the lives of the forefathers and foremothers, we see that the centrality of home and the raising of family, family life is really at the essence mm. of where spiritual achievement is genuinely Like Genesis is just considered, a family story, a family. And it's a remarkable text in terms of the documents of the ancient world. It doesn't deal with wars, it doesn't deal with kings and nobles. Right. It deals with finding wives, and... finding wives, interactions between husbands and yeah. wife, family relationships, tensions between siblings, and it's there that true spirituality begins. It, Judaism has, has always been a little bit suspicious, I would argue, of grandiose schemes. Mm. Um, people who speak a lot about care for a class of human being, for a whole society, but in their individual lives and specific relationships and emotional connections, aren't decent husbands, aren't decent wives, aren't, aren't good children, aren't positive parents, children would, would be a little bit suspicious about their claim to indeed be spiritually sensitive and kind and ethical people. One can be a, a Lenin who, who talks at great length about the class and one's care for the working class, and yet on a personal individual level doesn't know how to treat someone decently, and that's not what we would call true spirituality. And that's why Genesis, the first book of the Torah, the foundational book of the Torah, that's starting off and the foundation upon which everything is later built, starts off by saying the keystone has to be um, home, family, out of that broader family, community, nation, and ultimately, of course, the whole world. So in that sense, we are universalistic. We, we, we engage with the whole world, but we believe the building blocks of that have to start off from individual responsibility, personal connection, and that's something in which uh, both men and women have a very deep and meaningful engagement with, but the Torah privilege is uh, the role of women in that uh, area. And indeed, that seems to be true to how uh, human biology, human nature is. Fine, but what, what would you say to the fact that, you know, and today we're starting to see marital roles and familial roles starting to be slightly more spread out between, between the genders. Um, and therefore, maybe that's something that could be recognized within the Jewish system. What would you say to that? You know, father, paternity leave now is starting to see as something that's uh, a, a, a right given to, to fathers. Um, fathers are taking on some more of what would have been traditionally maternal roles. So what would you say to how that could be incorporated? Or do you think it should be? Or do you, think that, do you see that as a positive step? What's your take? There definitely has been a shift. and. In many respects, that shift is positive. We understand today, in a way that wasn't understood even by some great thinkers in the past, that men and women are equipped with equal minds, with uh, ability to achieve anything they wish in the outside world. And uh, in fact, it, it emphasizes the, the equality that is at the essence of Judaism. Um, all human beings, as the Mishnah teaches us, born of one person, because we are all equal. No one can look at someone else and say, my parents, my ancestors were greater than yours. So it's only a positive thing that we now understand that, and that we live in a world in which every 
person, man and woman, has access to the highest standards of education, both secular education and Torah education. So that is a positive. How this will ultimately affect the development of society, the centrality of family, I don't know. And I think the jury is still out. Whilst a certain shift was necessary and has taken place and is still taking place and there's more to be done in that area, um, it's also clear that in the 21st century we get married later, we have smaller families, we dedicate less time to perhaps the most important responsibility we humans have, which is raising the next generation and caring for them and bringing them up as positive. And how this will ultimately interact with society, with a possible breakdown of society, with a decadent self-interest and pleasure-seeking, I don't know, and we'll see how that unfolds. But I, I would certainly say that this is an experiment that we as humanity have embarked on, and uh, an experiment that we don't know where it's heading and has a certain risk associated with it. And I would argue that we need a, a return to the centrality of family and family values. I'm not suggesting that in that we move back to a, an overly uh, gender role assignment. And I certainly think it's a fantastic thing that we as, I as a father, that we as parents are able to relate to our children more fully. Um, but I think that if it goes too far, there could be a price to pay. And I think that halacha is a, a wake-up call and a reminder that we need to be sensitive and careful about that. And perhaps the conservatism built into the halachic system is a good thing because it allows us to engage in a fruitful conversation and question and challenge some of the assumptions that aren't always critiqued. Halacha has built into it the possibility of flexibility um, within certain parameters and within a certain set framework. So not anything's possible in halacha, but there's a certain amount of movement, as we know, within uh, how halachic system functions. Within the Jewish world itself, in the space of 100 years, the revolution triggered by Sarah Shnira in girls' education means that girls are now able to learn, women are now able in schools to learn Torah on the highest level. So halacha certainly allows such shifts to take place. Why wasn't that happening, by the way? It, it, the point, it forces sure. us to engage within the Beit HaMedrash within conversation about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's only a good thing that when a society shifts, when a new value is introduced, the fact that we pause for breath, the fact that sometimes it takes us years or decades to trash out an issue and to question it as a positive thing, to be a ger v'toshav, to be both a sojourner and a, a stranger in the broader society is a good thing. It allows us both to integrate with it and engage with it, mm. but also to step back sometimes and question its assumptions. So I want to pick up on just two things you, you said there. The, fir the first question would be, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask them both and then you can... Uh, response to them in uh, you can pick and choose basically but the first question would be about uh, Sara Shanira who created mm -hmm. this movement of formal education for Jewish women um, wh wh why didn't we see was, was education not, not a priority the first question is was education not a priority for women uh, you know in, Jew in Jewish history up until that point and the second question would be um, we've certainly seen a shift in the role of public versus private uh, roles and responsibilities among genders, much more kind of equality in the, in the modern world. Is that something you would uh, embrace um, or would be a bit sceptical of? And um, I suppose what kind of comes also from that is, and that people would often be, I think, would be thinking when they're looking at this is, does that, and why doesn't that apply, or can we be flexible in Jewish prayer, which is the sort of the most obvious area in which there appears to be a lack of uh, gender equality? Okay, so these are these are. I've are, literally just <laughs> yes, loads of rich, very there. rich points. Yeah, each one of which needs needs a, a lot of unpicking. Um, I think there's several answers as to why there was relatively poor education for women pre the uh, Sarah Shanira revolution. Uh, the first point to mention is 
that a lot of education actually in uh, previous times took place in the home. Um, let's not forget that even the yeshiva institution in the modern form was only, only uh, introduced about 80 years or 100 years before that, the Velozhin Yeshiva opening. Um, until then, education had taken place within the community setting in the Jewish world, rather than within institutions that paralleled uh, um, universities or colleges. So certainly for women, much of the education took place in home in which they learnt from mothers and uh, elders within the community. Um, the second point is that, to some degree, probably the differences simply reflected the brutal facts of life, the expectations on uh, men to go out and labour in the outside world, and women to run the home, which pre the revolution in, in domestic appliances and so on, took up most of the day. Um, mortality rates were shockingly high. People lived short and, and hard-working lives in which they didn't always have the leisure and the time to educate themselves, so that's perhaps a second point. Um, the third point is we should recognise and be honest about this, that uh, there were assumptions made and certain prejudices about the roles of men and women. And as I said, even great thinkers uh, perhaps made mistakes in this area. Uh, Ramosha Feinstein, the uh, foremost halachic authority of the last uh, century, writes about this in one of his Teshuvot, in which he says that uh, the halachic system on occasion reflects societal norms and therefore Halacha is ultimately a realistic system, and therefore it will work within how the economy works, within the realities of what we said was often a short and brutal and tough life, and within some of the assumptions that society makes, and uh, it, will, it will realistically accept that and try and move that forward in a positive way, nudge it forward uh, in, in a positive way, but can't necessarily completely counter some of the assumptions that were there. Um, the final point, though, to make is, um, and it gets back to the point I was making previously in your next question, that the adoption of a public role for women and public roles for women comes with very very a large number of positive elements, but also uh, possibly price, a price to pay. Um, it's positive in the fact that we're opening opportunities to human beings, and that can only be a good thing. Um, but how that will affect home and the priority of home and family, we, we are slowly seeing and perhaps still have yet to see. And again, Judson would say that the centrality of family, community is so important that we should question even positive developments mm. if the price we're going to pay is going to be overly significant. So I don't have the answers here. Exactly what the balance is in the modern world is perhaps a conversation still ongoing. Um, other than to say two things very clearly, I think it's a good thing, a wonderful thing, and a positive thing that women have increased, uh, have access now to equal education and are able to be out there in the world. But equally, we need to monitor and, and view with care what price will be paid in terms of society and family, and, and that's equally and, and vitally important. And what do you say with regard to um, you know, the movement that, that calls for uh, uh, equality in regard to Jewish communal prayer services, yeah. you know, that say that women should be able to be called up to the Torah, they should be able to um, you know, pray for the, for the community? Um, yeah. What do you say to that? The... First of all, to, to just understand the halakhic framework uh, of, of this discussion, prayer is something that all humans need to engage in. This is a, 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 not a, a Jewish need, this is a human need. Um, anyone who wants to build a relationship with themselves and a relationship with God uh, needs to pray. It's something vitally important for all of us. The second point to make is that communal prayer, in, in some senses, is a, is a self-contradiction. 
Um, it's not an obvious thing that there should be communal prayer. Communal, the Hebrew word for prayer, lit parallel, is a reflexive verb. It's something that one engages with oneself. It's self-judgment is the literal meaning, self-reflection, self-consideration, and ultimately a very personal and intimate conversation with God. The idea that we can pray as a community is, is, is strange and, and a little bizarre, and in, in some respects contradicts, one might think, the essence of prayer. Why do we take it for granted that there's communal prayer? Because well, that's what we used to. But in many respects, actually, it's not what prayer should be about. Communal prayer was designed in order to uh, allow one to be get together with other people engaged in prayer, and in a sense, pays the price and accepts a certain superficiality and a certain um, harm done to the internal nature of prayer, uh, but nonetheless necessary in order to allow the positives of a communal dynamic. Um, for example, the most famous part of communal prayer, remarkably, the repetition of the Amida, the Chazan, stands there in the front of the shul and sings their way through davening. Only introduced for those that aren't sincerely able to engage in personal prayer and therefore need that public form of prayer. It's a less good form of prayer to have one person at the front representing us whilst at best, which is what we ought to be doing, we're listening to their prayer and focusing on it, and at worst, actually, we're sitting talking to our neighbour in shul. So uh, I think Judaism needs to be judged in terms of its own values and what it considers important. And whilst we live in a broader society that perhaps slips sometimes into seeing very public and communal roles as being that which is most important, and we as Jews also adopt that, this isn't really what the Torah is teaching us. The Torah teaches us that internal values, internal achievements are that which matter. So in a sense, the desire for a public role is, is not reflecting what we ought to see as that which is prestigious and that which is true achievement. Mm. That which truly ought to be valued is our own personalities, our own spiritual and emotional health, and our own ability to relate to other people and God. Um, public roles aren't, don't need to be, shouldn't be seen as all that is valued. And there seems to be a premise, I think a mistake, in, in the premises of the conversation, in which somehow a public role is what really counts and what really matters, and therefore in depriving people of that opportunity, we're somehow stealing from them that which is most precious and most important. It's a Western Because in fact, in, in our own set of values, exactly, in our own set of values, this ought not to be, though all too often it is, that which really uh, counts. Now, in terms of the ability to teach Torah uh, and to engage in a public role in that sense, we as a society have that absolutely accessible. Um, in terms of tefillah, there's nothing wrong with women right. forming prayer. There's nothing wrong with women forming prayer groups when they wish to do so, and governing praying in their own uh, in, in in that manner. The halachic setup of repetition of the amida, of the idea of having a chazan engaged in uh, communal worship in order to fulfil the obligation that others have, that is something which isn't possible without a minyan. And the context of this form of communal prayer is that of men, is that of a group of men. Um, the reason for this is, is technical, because in order to exempt someone else through my own prayer, I need to be obligated in the equivalent, i.e. in the idea of communal prayer. And communal prayer is something that was necessary and therefore put in place for men, and isn't seen as necessary and therefore not put in place for women. Um, they can engage in davening together as a group if they wish. Um, and in fact, I, I would argue it, it suggests a different sort of leadership model not a leadership model in which you have one person at the front in a sort of hierarchical structure uh, praying on behalf of everyone else, mm. but in fact you have a group collectively davening. And if that's how uh, people wish to daven, in fact in, in many places that take place, women can get together and daven. If they wish to have the model in which uh, one person is engaged in a formal 
prayer on behalf of everyone else mm. in the manner of Amida or Kriyat HaTorah, of uh, the Torah reading, of learning, then that's not something that the halachic system uh, and offers. And can you pinpoint why that is? So, for example, some people point to the fact that um, listening to a woman's voice in, in Orthodox uh, Jewish law is problematic. Uh, singing voice, I mean, is, prob- is problematic. And some people would say, well, that's only if it's done to seduce. But it's, if it's not done to seduce, well, then it's not, not an issue. So, so you're, pin- you're saying that the key focus is the question of leading the, the, mm. the, the, the community. And the question is, why don't we have that uh, opportunity for women? There are various uh, subsidiary halachic discussions that take place around this issue, including uh, the issue reference about uh, women singing, a, a halacha that certainly is associated with um, the possibility of secularization and, uh, and so on. In, in, in the sense that this is a distraction when we're talking about prayer, that isn't the core issue when it comes to tefillah. The core issue when it comes to prayer is that of prayer being a personal experience, the communal form of prayer created solely when, as I said, there's a minion, a group of ten men, uh, reflecting the fact that for men, communal prayer is is a halachic possibility, um, though not necessarily an ideal. As I said, the repetition of mm. the Amida is not necessarily an ideal and not something that um, exists for women. Again, though, I, I think the deeper point is, one, and one that we need to get our heads around, and perhaps is a little challenging in, in our mindset today, the deeper point is that the idea that a public role is the end-all and be-all of spiritual achievement is, in, is quite the opposite of how we think about things. I get that. Um, I'm just pinpointing yeah. why are we not going to offer that opportunity in prayer to... Like, I understand... It's it. not we. I mean, it's the halachic the system halachic, yeah. that doesn't offer it because it, want, it wants the focus there to remain on that which is internal and that which is perhaps more authentic and uh, more real and more sincere and more genuine in that... I'm saying, so then let's just allow Levites to do it, you know, to give, why, why are we saying, okay, we're going to put, draw the line at just only men? We, we spoke before about egalitarianism and equality, and, and uh, you are right, the, the halachic system is not equal in the sense of the pathway, the halachic pathway offered to different people uh, being identical. Levites, priests, karnim have a different role to other Jews, and there are differences between men and women in, in role. Um, we happen to now focus on some of the mitzvot, some of the laws, some of the commandments that uniquely apply to men and look on those and say, well, this is something that women are being deprived of. The anarchic system simply offers some opportunities to men, some opportunities to women. Mm-hmm. It happens to be that in the 21st century, the public roles which are seen as those which are most important are more often configured for uh, for men within the halachic system. And the reason that we can suggest with that difference is, as, as I said, because of the focus on home and family and internal values. Um, being a, a person who is focused outwards can contradict uh, the inward focus that is needed to build a, a healthy home and family. And uh, the halachic sure. system reflects that. Um, once again, it doesn't deprive, it, beyond the very superficials of publicly being able to stand up and, and lead in, in an almost hierarchical manner, it doesn't deprive women of, of mitzvot in any way. It simply says some of them are obligations, some of them are opportunities, rather than just obligations, but things they can engage with. I think the only and, and predominant area in the halachic system where one sees this sort of clash of cultures is there in very public roles, which is unfortunate, because I think it's missing, uh, missing the point of, of actually the true message that's trying to be conveyed. And can you here. see these things ever changing within the orthodox framework, or... Or not? It's always hard to 
uh, predict the future, and I don't know if pre the Sarashnir revolution people would have seen that as coming. Um, the way halacha is currently... But that never is, really contradicted halacha, you know, saying we're going to have... I mean, maybe it did, I don't know. Yes. The, the way halacha is, is understood, uh, this is not a possibility. Um, halacha is an ongoing conversation, and it's always hard to predict exactly where a conversation will go. Um, I, I believe in the halachic system. I believe that the halachic system has demonstrated over thousands of years its ability to balance two things, um, to remain true to the values, the, the inner values that permeate it, to allow change and development when it ne is needed to take place, and to allow this change to take place in a manner that doesn't offer a rupture with the past, that gives a sense of continuity, um, such that one can see how this is the, the same, and yet allowing a new application. Uh, I am not worried about halacha and its ability to confront any of the ethical, moral, or scientific developments that the future will bring, and I'm sure it will find answers that work. Um, and I, I think that many uh, genuinely passionate, engaged Jewish women find the current model one that, that is meaningful and offers spiritual growth to them. And I would simply say that uh, one needs to question oneself when, when one is frustrated by the system as it currently is. Is what's frustrating one simply a determination to break a system which one sees as unequal, or is it a genuine and passionate attempt to engage meaningfully with one's spirituality, with mm. one's moral and ethical development, and with God. Mm. And perhaps the measure of that is, is one only pushing on areas where one perceives inequality, or is one also equally expending the same amount of energy in pushing on other areas yeah. of spiritual development? And if someone is genuinely engaging in every area of spiritual opportunity and spiritual life in the fullest halachic way, and isn't shirking away from mitzvot, from commandments in general, and isn't shirking away from other opportunities of spiritual development for, for men and women, um, then I would say their voice in this area needs to be taken seriously. In my view, uh, those that are genuinely and passionately engaging with all the opportunities that are available, that, that fills a life. There, there isn't easy yeah. time available for more. And therefore, I think a lot of this is driven by a, um, a disquiet with the system as a whole, um, and, and there's a premise here that simply, it, it, in my view, you asked about what the future could bring. I don't know about every specific of halachic detail. I know one thing, though, that I, at the, to my understanding, at the core of Torah is not an egalitarian system, if by that one means um, absolute equality in every respect. That seems to contradict the message of halacha, and it seems to be too interwoven into what Torah life is. I mean, I don't just mean about differences between the genders, I mean in, 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 in every sense. We, we human beings are different. Each and every one of us is different and has a different role. And uh, that I can't see changing. Okay, let's do a different topic now. Many people find it remarkable that Judaism is quite unique in the fact that it doesn't seek to convert people. It doesn't outwardly go out and say to, you know, uh, hand flyers out to people and say, you know, learn about the Torah and in, in the manner that you see other religions doing. My first question would be, number one, why? What, if we, you know, if we do believe that this is something that is, is true and something that the entire world should be aware of, why aren't we putting an effort to do that? You know, some, some, there are some Jewish people who think we should be teaching the world about the Noahide laws, the laws that apply to all mankind, not just uh, Jewish people. Um, 
And then the second question would be, well, at the same time, you can't help but realise how much Jewish values have impacted the world anyway. Um, be it, you know, we've got some videos uh, on JTV that deal with this, like, you know, the like, value of human life, peace as an ideal, family values, um, belief in the God of Abraham, you know, so much of this has, comes from, this, all of this comes from uh, the Torah. So, at the same time, we haven't focused on converting people, and yet we have influenced the world. Um, so the, the, the question kind of becomes, how does this whole concept of light unto nations really work? And why, why or sh should it maybe involve, uh, you know, more active outreach. pursuit, active yes. outreach of non-Jews? Yeah. yeah. I think there's two answers or two points to be made about the question. The first point is pragmatic, and the second is philosophical. So let's uh, first address the pragmatic one. They'd all hate um, us, basically. <laughs> no. Um, it, pragmatically speaking, it doesn't believe in outreach as the best way of spreading a message. Mm. Um, in a sense, this ties into our previous discussion. We are, by nature, by instinct, the Torah wants us to be internal-focused. And it believes that the real way to change the world is by changing yourself. There was a great uh, Jewish ethical thinker, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, who said, when I was young, I wanted to change the world. As I got older, I wanted to change my country, my town, my family, till at the end of my life, I realized if only I would be able to change myself. And that reflects a, a, a very core Torah message. As we, spoke, as we mentioned before, Torah starts off with Genesis. It starts off with family. It starts off with home. It starts off with oneself, one's relationship to one's siblings, to one's parents, to one's children. And one needs to get that right first. So the first and more pragmatic answer is that Judaism is sceptical about the sincerity, the authenticity of trying to persuade others of one's values, mm. and in a sense sees that as a distraction and, and almost uh, can drift into a, a control of others, a loss of focus of actually, um, if only I would be able to improve myself. And therefore it believes that true change can be affected by, by example. If I can go through life and I can be a moral human being, an honest human being, a kind person, who people can look at as a shining example and say, this is a person who truly walks with God. This is a person who truly and passionately cares about being the best person they can, about treating every other human being with respect and kindness and care. That is the best way of being a, an example. A light unto the nations doesn't mean going out there and burning others. It means by being a light, by trying to be the best person we can. So this is a, a practical semi-philosophical point, um, that the best way to, to influence the world is, is by influencing oneself, is by being a, a, a person that shines as a role model. The second point to make is that um, Judaism doesn't think that everyone has to be Jewish in order to become a genuinely spiritual and moral human being, uh, to become someone who is capable of a deep and meaningful relationship with God and a place in the world to come. Um, we have Jewish role models, we have non-Jewish role models in, in, in our Torah, in the Bible, um, we are taught, both in the verses of Genesis itself, and it made explicit by the Mishnah, that no human can turn to another human and say, my ancestors were greater than yours, because we were all born of one couple, of Adam and Eve. We're taught that all humans are created in the image of God. All humans have the ability to choose, to choose freely, to choose wisely and well, hopefully, but also to mess up. And that's the essence of what it means to be a human being, to choose and to take responsibility for one's decisions. And every human being, Jew and Gentile, is able to do so. So the second and more, more profound point is that ultimately uh, we don't need everyone to become Jewish. That's not our aim. Our aim is that 
all people should be moral people, ethical people, spiritual people, people that have God's values in their lives. But that could still require outreach, couldn't it? So here you get to the pragmatic point of, of what the best way of achieving that is. Right. But the core message is, is one that we don't think is uh, is certainly not outreach to become uh, uh, to become Jews and, and to be part of the Jewish people. Perhaps if we mm. also delve back into into history, um, it, part of the message and the story of Genesis and, and Genesis speaks about family and home when it moves on to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the, the forefathers and foremothers. Um, but it initially does start dealing with society. It talks about the generation of the floods. It talks about the generation of the dispersal. And the sages teach us that God's original plan, which remains his plan, is for all humans to be able to have a direct relationship with him. The creation of a chosen nation, of a people, the people of Israel, was a second best, was a reluctant accommodation. In other words, since I see that societies don't always live up to their optimum, and it's too easy for society to forget its values, I'm going to create one nation which by hook or by crook is going to be locked into a very tight system of values. A nation which, when it does well, will prosper, and when it fails, will be dispersed amongst the world, and, and sometimes, God forbid, will suffer. And this nation will therefore always serve as a reminder and a wake-up call. As uh, the former chief rabbi, Rabbi Sachs, says, whenever a society begins crumbling, whenever society begins losing its values, the, the canary in the coal mine, the first wake-up call, is the rise of anti-Semitism. God said to Abraham, those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And this isn't just a, a spiritual uh, um, promise or, or one directly influenced by godly intervention. It's also a comment about the reality of the world. If you have a society in which the other, that, who is different, those who, who perhaps are living a certain set of values in a way that isn't identical with that society, mm. is able to flourish and is able to be blessed, then you as a society will be blessed. And if you're not able to respect that message, if you're going to be full of, full of hate towards the subhuman who you see as uh, weakening virile human values as Hitler did, and as the conscience of the world is lessening that which is human, then your society will ultimately be cursed, it will ultimately fail. And therefore, in our existence, as the other sometimes, as the alien sometimes, this is a way of, of uh, sharing with the world a message in a more profound sense. Uh, the literal meaning of our original name, Ivri Hebrew, the etymology of this is unclear. Um, the sages, in one of their explanations, ascribed its meaning to that of the Ivri, uh, uh, those who are on the other side of the river, on the other side of the world, always have an element within themselves that's a little bit counter-cultural. We now know from archaeological finds that indeed Ivru was what the Egyptians called the alien, the other. And the Torah asks of us perhaps always to be a little bit different, to always cha challenge society and its assumptions. We spoke before about egalitarianism. I think halacha always has to be a little bit out of sync with broader societal values. Because otherwise, otherwise it's not forcing us yeah. to question. And if we think the values we have today in 2018 are perfect, we ought to, that's hubris, we ought to pause for thought and be a little bit more modest. Mm. Um, a hundred years ago, the values weren't identical to the ways that they are today. We are able to look back in hindsight and say, how was it possible that even intelligent and great people had assumptions which we would nowadays absolutely label as sexist or, or racist and other moral failures? And what do we think in a hundred years' time the values will be? So I would argue that if we find a dissonance between Jewish values and broader societal values, that's a positive. That is the blessing that we are given. Um, if we find the values exactly match, then we ought to question whether indeed we are living up to Torah, to Judaism, mm. whether it anymore has a role to offer. And therefore, there ought to be that which is challenging in Judaism. There ought to be that that makes us question and question again. And we need to remain to some degree the other in order ultimately to influence the world. That is the only way we can influence the world, by being the other. That's so that's a, a wow. pragmatic and a philosophical uh, answer yeah. to your question. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I once heard uh, someone talking that they were sort of very much on the sort of the far liberal side of the yes. uh, Jewish religious spectrum. Yeah. Um, and kind of like had like a humanistic Jew Jewish uh, yes. um, philosophy. And they said, look, if we just become a bit, you know, if we just, if our values and ideology becomes much more similar to, uh, you know, a Western uh, progressive mindset, then we'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage a lot more Jews to, to be interested in their Judaism. But the great rebuttal point that was made to that is that, well, if you show Judea, if you show uh, young Jews that Judaism's values is completely identical to the values of the world today, they don't need to do anything. They don't need to further engage in their Judaism. Absolutely. The only tweak I would say is, and I don't, I don't want this to be or come across as um, a critique of Western progressive or liberal values. Sure. I, I, I'm great. I view myself in, in many respects as liberal and progressive, and value the West. Um, it, it's a critique of any society within which we exist. Any society within which we exist, our job is, and, and the halachic system, and the nature of conversation that takes place within the Beit Medrash, within the, the academy of Jewish learning, challenges us always to engage in conversation with the past and with the future. In every conversation that we have in the Beit Medrash, we're always looking backwards. What would the greats have said? What would Maimonides have said about this? What would Rashi have said about this? What would the Gemara, the Talmud have said about this? And we are always looking forward does this move us towards a world, the messianic era? Does this move us towards a better world, a more positive world? And it's that conversation between the generations that can only take place because of the sense of family and continuity we have as Jewish people. The, the, the fact that we are able to refer to our ancestors three and a half thousand years back as our foremothers, our forefathers. Um, it's that conversation that allows us to hopefully always be the other in any society within which we live and therefore challenge that society to become a little better, and ourselves take part in that in that growth. And I don't want to overplay the, the, the otherness and the distance here. We are benefits, we, we are beneficiaries of the progression that society has also made, but our job is never to be exactly identical. Our job is always to question assumptions. That's what it means to be a to be a Jew. Okay, so once we have the Messianic era and you have the entire world recognizing the one God of Abraham, um, do you st is there still that need for the other, for the Jewish people being distinct and separate at that point? We, I, I mentioned before the original plan, which was for all humans to engage on this journey. Mm. And the great prophets of the Messianic era are very clear that that is the ultimate goal. The change that takes place is that this forward movement won't only be in the context of a friction and a certain tension. Um, Let's be honest, there hasn't been a perfect partnership over the last 3,000 years. Yeah. There's been tensions built into it. The Messianic era is an era in which those tensions are removed. In other words, there won't be, there'll be a sense of partnership and shared human partnership in that journey. And what prophets tell us is that when we get to that era, we will all be fellow travellers in that uh, movement. Uh, the Messianic era, which we label as if it's just one period in time, itself has a progression within it. It's not a static uh, mm. point in time. Were it to be static, we would question the point of it. It would appear to be pointless. So it's a continuation of the journey. Exactly how that journey unfolds um, is, is sometimes a little unclear. And uh, the Rambam, the great Maimonides himself, points out that such speculation is often fruitless. But what we do know is that the end goal is for all humans to speak one language, to be fellow travellers, one, metaphorically one language, mm. i.e. to all be on the same page in terms of um, seeing a relationship to God, spirituality, ethics, 
as central to what it means to be a human being, and we will be fellow travellers at that point. So you said that um, being uh, distinct and setting an example is the is the way we Jews roll basically. at this point in our yeah. in our history. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the the question is. Uh, I think amplify when you when you look at uh, Jewish outreach within the Jewish community, is it uh, a bit different in in that? Are, are, are the, the sort of the values and the, the the circumstances different in that instance? Because here uh, we're trying to make, in other words, we're trying to make the Jewish people more distinct um, by becoming by getting Jews re, re sort of ignited reigniting their Jewish identity, um, and so. Is there an argu- a case to be made for outreach with regard to the Jewish community? Yeah. Um, first of all, again, I just want to emphasize that it's not all about distinction. There are many things that we are meant to be. And uh, I would say that all Jewish education, Jewish outreach, is aimed at trying to allow our, our fellow Jews to be as engaged with the values, the, the beautiful values, the positive values, the infinitely beautiful values of Torah. Um, part of which is distinction where necessary and and where there's a point of conflict there are areas where where currently in the world we don't need to uh, we don't feel distinct and on the contrary we're able to be integrated but where our values differ to to be able to positively sure. and confidently push that argument forward and all societies need to give space for different arguments to that which are the consensus of the majority um, I do think Jewish outreach is good I think that um, engaging every single Jew that we can in Jewish education, in opportunities to learn and to grow is fantastic. Um, the Talmud, quoting really the verse in Deuteronomy, says that Torah is meant to be it's meant to be the legacy, the inheritance of the whole community of Israel. And uh, when you see someone who is unaware of having won the lottery, when you see someone who's unaware of uh, the beauty of their heritage and their culture and their traditions, that, that's a pity. Mm-hmm. And uh, I to dedicate one's life to being able to teach Torah and share it, I think is a wonderful thing. Um, where I think we need to be cautious, and, and in a way, in a sense, this gets back to the pragmatic point, which in some sense does um, exist within the Jewish world equally, um, we need to be careful about the hard sell. And we need to be careful whether sometimes... The hard sell. Um, and we need to be careful whether sometimes, in thinking about the packaging of the message, we, we can lose focus on the contents of the message, and we can damage ourselves and our own authenticity in so doing. And we can adopt... Can you elaborate um, on that? Yes. We can sometimes adopt inadvertently um, in an attempt to make an attractive message, we can sell out our own values. You referenced before, for example, the idea of somehow to make Judaism more attractive, we should give up on some of our values. Um, equally, sometimes in trying to make it more uh, um, attractive, we, we can... You, you know, we nowadays have realised that very often, often the medium, the media used, affects the content of the message also. And in subtle ways that weren't always obvious in the past, when you're communicating a message through the printed word, through the spoken word, through social media, through different types of social media, that affects what the message is and how it is heard. And I think, along with the rest of society, who, who are only beginning to learn how the new forms of media that are available and the, the routes of communication that we now have access to, I think as, as Jews, we also need to be sensitive to that. And sometimes when we adopt a marketing model, an advertising model, um, that can contradict the essence of Judaism. If the essence of Judaism is about that which is inner and real value, real authenticity, real care, real compassion, um, real 
spiritual development and desire to be the best person we can. And if the only way we can sell that is it, it, through charismatic education, through that which looks good and is superficially attractive, we, we can contradict the message itself. Mm. Um, by definition, when you're in sales, you have to use that which is instantly and visually appe appealing. But is that really true to, to what the message is meant to be and what Judaism is meant to be about? So I think there is a danger in outreach in that sense, number one. And secondly, I think there's a danger in outreach when it can be a hard sell, when it can somehow lessen someone's ability to choose freely. In, in Judaism, the, the value above all values that we place is that of choice. Um, to be human is to choose, and it's only in choosing that we are genuinely creative, that we genuinely exist, that it's genuinely I who I'm speaking, as opposed to an, in, in which I'm genuinely a subject, as opposed to an object in which external forces are operating. Good education is education that expands choice, education that informs and enriches and furnishes the mind mm. so that people can make fuller choices and hopefully therefore better choices. Poor education and poor outreach is education which in some way um, limits choice and in some way makes someone feel guilty or imposed upon or out-charismaed, if I can coin a phrase, and uh, <laughs> therefore drawn after certain choices without really the ability to Is there an argument though that they might end up doing it for the right reasons and they might become, if, they, if they're compelled to start doing, you know, being, becoming more observant then, then eventually they'll, they'll start to see the beauty in it and do it of their own. I, I, I'm sceptical about that. I'm sceptical that um, it, no one does everything in life, no one needs to do everything in life without any ulterior motives. Um, clearly when ever anyone does something good, there can be a mix and a range of emotions. We human beings are complicated and we operate on many levels. Um, and there can be a sincere desire to do good, along with a desire to have recognition or acknowledgement and other mm -hmm. such things. Yeah. However, when something is sold, often to uh, teenagers, to students, who are perhaps at slightly vulnerable stages in their life, and when it is imposed, I don't believe that any genuine long-term good can come from that. And very often a heavy price is paid in, in which people can be wrenched away from family and community and later regret uh, damage to very important, uh, invaluable relationships uh, in their lives. And therefore I would say true growth has to be through education, it has to be slow, it has to be internalized, and only that is sustainable, and only that really will, will allow a person to improve and, and, and come out as a better person. I would even say, and, and I understand that this might be somewhat controversial, I, I would say that someone who is an authentic human being, true to sincerely held values and to themselves, in some respects, is, is better than the person who is inauthentic and superficial, even though what they're externally doing is right. Mm. Now, there's clearly limitations to that, because you can have someone who's very sincere and I very authentic, <laughs> who, who does if he was authentic to his beliefs, yeah. who does terrible things. Yeah. Um, so this needs to be said with caution and care, mm. but certainly there's, there's a point of truth in that that we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't forget. Mm. And therefore, the hard cell or the superficial cell really carries in it um, the seeds of, of what I, I see as considerable danger. Our primary form of outreach should be um, not marketing, but authenticity, us shining, hopefully, through example, us being the best people we can, and embracing and engaging every person we meet, welcoming them into our homes, our communities, not being judgmental, and, uh, and in so doing, hopefully, uh, influencing people in a positive way, allowing them to make choices rather than imposing choices. What, what's the difference between education and package marketing? So, for example, we do short videos, you know, pieces of camera, where we'll explain, you know, uh, do a video on the Jewish impact on world values um, and there'll be music and there'll be yeah. uh, you know animation and graphics in a sense it's packaged it's all yes. I think uh, va uh, valid information 
Um, so so where, where's the line between education and mm-hmm. marketing? A few points. The first thing is, I think, in your field and, and what you're doing, of course, you also have to be careful with that. Um, anyone engaged with the media in any sense has to, and I know you do, do a constant uh, inner reflection. Am I being true to myself? Am I being authentic in what I do? And I know we've had conversations about that over the years, about how one does that. So I would say it definitely applies to this field as much as any other. Um, pleasant packaging to make it easier to listen to and uh, a comfortable and positive experience, no harm whatsoever. And of course, any learning environment should be uh, positive and comfortable, whether the classroom or via uh, YouTube. Where the packaging takes over is the point of danger. Where the attempt isn't to deliver a message for consideration, but as an attempt to persuade is where things become uh, 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 more difficult and more complicated. Can you give an ex- a, made, a made up example? I think there's several examples of what that can look like. It can be where a shared Jewish experience isn't true to how the Jewish world really works. It can be where something is deliberately and consciously concealed, and certainly if it's lied about. Um, We've spoken before in this setting and others about some of the messages of Judaism that aren't always easy uh, listening and don't always accord with some of the 21st values, century values, and when there's an attempt to conceal them or not be honest about what they are, there needs to be disclosure and honesty and, and full information given in order to empower people to make decisions rather than to limit them in making those decisions. And where a deliberate attempt is made to make something attractive in a manner which contradicts Jewish values, where there's the exclusion of those who aren't instantly appealing or instantly charismatic, that's a contradiction to the very values and the very message we're trying to give. And in all those cases, I think it's, uh, it, it's dangerous and, and um, can end up uh, being untrue to what Judaism is meant to be. Having said that, um, all education is complicated. All education certainly involves in, in teaching students stage by stage and piece by piece. Um, much of what one learns in year seven, first year of high school physics, turns out to be untrue. We know that uh, an electron isn't a little planet circling the nucleus in the middle, yeah. and yet that is acceptable education because it's a model which to a some degree of accuracy is correct. So, so it is difficult to work out exactly how to build education in a manner in which one's uh, building on firm foundations piece by piece that which we wish to share, but there needs to be a process of reflection and uh, um, self-questioning and honesty and uh, taking external observations seriously in so doing. And I think those organizations that get it right... Um, you can name some of them, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that those organizations that get it right uh, engage deliberately in self-reflection, sometimes bring in outsiders to review them, and take seriously the criticism voiced to them. When a Jewish institution, any institution, educational institution, gets criticism from the outside, it needs to take that seriously and needs to think about what's being said and why that's being said, mm. rather than act defensively. And I think there's a mindset behind this, which is... It doesn't always mean the criticism is valid. It doesn't always mean criticism is valid, but it needs yeah. to be thought about and taken seriously. And I think there's a deeper mindset behind this. And, and the mindset is... Just because we are privileged to have access to Torah and a certain truth, does that mean we think we have all the truth? Does that mean that we have, think we have all the answers? And anyone who's going into education or any conversation with the premise that I have all the answers um, and, and the person opposite me can't, be, uh, can't have access to the truth, 
because they deny some of the truths that I think are obvious and important, whether in belief in God or, or a certain sense of spirituality, they must be dishonest, they must be biased. I, I think that's a, a, dis, a destruction of the possibility of any sincere and honest conversation. It's very easy to throw accusations of bias around. The, uh, the believer says the non-believer just likes the free life in which they uh, don't have values, and the non-believer says, well, the believer finds it comforting to have a father figure and a God in their lives. Yeah. Um, I don't think these sorts of accusations, yeah. I don't think they, they, they're caricatures, they're superficial, and I don't think they move the conversation on in, in any meaningful way. You know what, we're humans, we can only try and be as honest as we can. We may all have biases and, and we can do our best to try and notice them. Um, we can discuss ideas, we, we can debate and, and argue and consider and reflect. Um, we, we can't make judgments about what other people's motives are. And if we are making these judgments, we may make a pretense of listening and seriously considering their view, but then it's not honest, it's not true, that's not right. really what's going on. Right, okay. In that note, I, I would mention the Gemara, the Talmud says, a person should practice saying, I don't know. Meaning to say, in any conversation, a person needs to practice saying they don't know. Mm. Firstly, because there's an invaluable message in education in when one says, I don't know. Um, when one says, I don't know, you're teaching your students, the person you're in conversation with, that it's okay to say you don't know. You're teaching them that it's not about me as the charismatic educator. I don't have all the answers. You're respecting them and showing that there's an insight that they can come up with, which is genuinely valuable. You're perhaps training them how to deal with the I don't knows in life. Let's go and look it up. Let's research it. Let's consult someone who knows more than we do. You're training them that one can go forward with an I don't know. After all, the wisest person on earth only knows a tiny fraction, if that, of the infinite wisdom that's there in, in creation, whether that's in the sciences, the arts, or indeed in spirituality. Practice saying I don't know, so that when you really don't know, you're able to say it. And, and to my mind, that's perhaps the most valuable message in education we can give our students is, how do we deal with I don't knows in life? Because we're all going to have to grapple with that. We're not going to be there to be teachers for our students the whole time. They are going to have to learn how to deal with something they don't know, how to attempt to find answers, and if they can't find answers, still move on in life. Mm. And, in, and in many ways, I think that's the most important education we can give our Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can find more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Kiva Tatz, and many more. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Oli Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.